Film historians consider this to be the most lasting, enduring image in cinema history. If you don't know it, this is Harold Lloyd from his movie Safety Last, hanging 13 stories up over the pavement of Los Angeles. 2016, uh, Simon Garfield wrote an intriguing book. I enjoyed the book. It was called Timekeepers. He had this to say about Harold Lloyd and Safety Last. With Harold Lloyd dangling from a clock high above the city, our entire modern world hangs there too. A vision of every man successfully hanging on as time falls away. That's a good point about that image. It is all of us hanging there, trying to hang on to time. Of course, you're asking, I know, I know, in your Harold Lloyd imitation, you're saying, why bring that old image up? I mean, isn't that rather passe here 100 years later? Thank you, Harold Lloyd. I flash back to your classic image because more than 100 years after you made that movie, very little has changed. I mean this. When, when I look at the difference of thinking between 21st century people and 20th century people as captured in that early 20th century movie, I can only find one difference between the thinking. The only difference is people today in the early 21st century feel a false sense of omniscience. Just like our forebears, we are stressed. We struggle with wisdom and priorities when everything seems to move so fast. The one difference is today we are burdened with false omniscience and, and false omnipresence as well. But instead of making us wise and fulfilled, our false omniscience leaves us feeling flat. We feel as flat as if we had lost our grip on the minute hand high over the pavement. One of our city leaders here in Frisco shared with me an excellent article. Um, in it, journalist Alana Newhouse explains the flatness that we feel today in our fake omniscience, the flatness. She says this. It's from her article, Everything is Broken and How to Fix It. Today's flatness has been defined by a set of very specific values, boundarylessness, speed, universal accessibility, and allergy to hierarchy, so much so that waiting or preferring of some voices or products over others is seen as illegitimate. A commitment to gratification at the push of a button, the idea that all choices can and should be made instantaneously, this is what leads to flatness, and that choices made by the majority in a given moment on a given platform represent a larger democratic choice, which is therefore both true and good, until the next moment and the next platform. Close quote. She is correct. We are driven crazy today by speed, by lack of boundaries, by instant gratification, by the pretense that hierarchy is all evil, etc., etc. But here's the great thing. Here's the great thing. The book of Mark depicts Jesus as the exact answer to every single thing that makes us feel flat. Look for a minute. I'm going to show you just real quickly what we're going to discover in the coming days from the last half of the Gospel of Mark. This is so cool. Let's take Mrs. Newhouse's list and let's see how Mark answers each problem. Are you flattened by boundarylessness? Boundarylessness basically means the idea there is no ethical norm. Well, that's right for you, but that's not right for me, and that's your truth. Are you flattened by that? Jesus shows very clear boundaries. He shows right and wrong. Heaven and hell in the second half of Mark. Servant leadership versus overbearingness. Try this one on. Have you been taught that hierarchy is wrong? If you're under 40, you were steeped in a school tradition that taught you that hierarchy is always wrong. Jesus shows... Listen carefully. Jesus shows that God-ordained order is absolutely necessary. And anyone who says otherwise is selling something. You see, those who say otherwise, those who say hierarchy is always wrong, are merely 
manipulating. They are, they are hiding their power. They like to say, George Orwell, have you not read Animal Farm? George Orwell made it very clear in Animal Farm. Oh, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. That is always the case when people pretend there's no hierarchy. Push-button gratification, is that plaguing you? Jesus shows how to find real pleasure in a lifetime series of choices of denying self. Does the speed of life have you just hanging on? Everything's just moving so fast. It's just so fast. Jesus says, let go. Follow me. I'll show you real speed. You see, Mark displays Jesus as the answer to humankind's battle with time. The, the, the book unfolds so rapidly. There is a breathless immediacy to the gospel of Mark. The, the terms straight away or immediately appear 41 times in this short book. How about our so-called uh, modern universal accessibility that we demand everyone accessibility all the time? You know, what we think of as universal accessibility is actually very, very limited by a few powerful gatekeepers. That's always the case. Jesus cleanses those human temples. And he shows us that real accessibility to true power, real accessibility to true power is a relationship with him, with God tabernacling with us. You feeling oppressed by mob rule? A lot of people are, always do through history. Jesus shows that he is Lord even through violence. In fact, the Gospel of Mark is shared in an environment of great conflict. There are 20 instances in Mark where Jesus is directly confronted by the uh, religious leaders. There are another 18 times when he has clashes with his disciples, one of which we're going to read about here in a moment. Conflict and suffering are the way for every single person who takes up their cross to follow Jesus. And yet, and yet, even with all the conflict, Jesus and his people always win in the end. Even death cannot conquer either him or the one who trusts him. All God's people said, amen. amen. Speaking of conflict, open your Bible, second half of Mark. That's your overview of the series, what we're going to learn over the next number of weeks. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 8, second book of your New Testament. Chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31, where we left off when we studied Mark before. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. In our notes um, there in the bulletin, if you're here or online, you should be able to pull them down. You'll see that we call this Peter's temptation of Jesus. It begins when Jesus predicts his passion. Now, there, there are two fours in this section we're going to read today. Here's the first four. There are four aspects to the passion of Christ. Suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Suffering, rejection, death, resurrection. Suffer. Jesus prophesies that he, the Son of Man, will suffer many things. He knows Isaiah. Isaiah promised that the, the servant must suffer. That's why Jesus says this is necessary. Necessary. Stop there for just a moment. You know, suffering in itself brings many, many problems to our limited human minds. But if you add necessary to it, it tips us right over the edge. Think of all the suffering in the world, all the pain, even in your own home, in your own community. Here is this human who is fully God. That's what the title Son of Man means. It means a human who's fully God. It's from the book of Daniel. And here's Jesus. He has all power. He could surely eliminate all suffering. But holding 
his personal compass to some true north that disciples can't see, Jesus acknowledges that pain is part of the plan, suffering. Second specific he mentions, maybe the most painful one of all, Jesus will be rejected by the, all the aspects of the Jewish leadership. The people who should be most in tune with him are the ones who tune him out. In fact, they will put him to death. The ultimate rejection is murder. And the third aspect of Jesus' passion is his death. To put someone to death is to completely deny them. But then Jesus promises the fourth part, his resurrection. And that changes everything. If, if only one has eyes to see it. And most people don't, even Christians. Preteen girl that I know suffers from cancer. She is in pain much of the time, and her chemotherapy days are just wretched. There was one day where her parents and I were in their living room. We were just lamenting the horror of it all, and she came in the room while we were praying. When we finished and looked up, she was standing there smiling, and she said to us, it's all good, you know. It's all good. God's the boss, and this is what has to be. And her mom said, oh, that's very brave, sweetheart, which it is. To which the girl, though, shook her head and said something, said something incredibly profound. She looked at us and said, oh, mom, it's not brave. It's just honest. The Lord promises me a perfect resurrection, right? So the worst I can do is end up all well forever. That's not bad. And we cried a lot harder, although this time, this time they were happy tears. Jesus lays out a very clear path, pain, rejection, death, resurrection. Now, this is the Lord who taught these disciples to follow me. He's already taught in Mark that those who trust him are in him and will be like him. This is something that my preteen friend obviously understands. She hears all the way to the undeserved, awesome ending, the resurrection. Peter does not listen or learn as well. In fact, he reacts horribly. Now, that's the headline on the right side of our notes. Peter reacts horribly. You know, the proper response to Jesus' pronouncement is to lament with him. Peter should be sad with Jesus, cry with him, and then work through that lamentation all the way to the joy of the certain resurrection. But instead, Peter says, whoa, you lost me at suffering. Suffering is not allowed. Now, people like to point out that at least Peter took Jesus aside and, and, and spoke to him, you know, rebuked him in private. He should get some praise for that. Uh, yeah, not much. Uh, now, Peter does get more applause in Matthew's account than in Mark. Mark skips over the part in Matthew which tells us that immediately before what we just read, Peter was the only one who had looked up when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ. Uh, when he said, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, wonderful, it is my Father who revealed this to you. But even that statement shouldn't get us too excited about Peter's brilliance. He's correct about Jesus, sure, but... But Peter is sadly stuck in a typical worldly leadership pattern. Think, think, folks. Think about leadership. What does every single worldly leader do? They promise you an end to suffering, a very rapid end to suffering. It's absurd, but it's what they do. If you elect me president, we're going to cure cancer. We're going to build a great, great wall on the southern border. I'll make Mexico pay for it. It's absurd stuff. And yet because it works... Eons of human leaders have promised an end to pain if you will only give them enough power. 
About 85 years before the scene we just read with Jesus and Peter, there was a man named Marcus Tullius Cicero. He was running for the highest office so far in human history, uh, the consul of Rome. His brother Quintus wrote a long letter to Marcus Cicero telling him how to win. Quintus says, and I quote, Remember Cotta, a, a Roman guy, that master of campaigning who said that he would promise anything unless some clear obligation prevented him, but he only lived up to those promises that benefited him. People, this is so true, people will be much angrier with a candidate who refuses to make promises than with one who, once elected, breaks them. Close quote. Peter is obviously steeped in that universal human view. He rebukes Jesus and he says, in effect, suffering, this is not how one establishes a kingdom. Stop it. You, you don't get to be Messiah King through promising suffering. And there's no doubt, by the way, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a personal element of this. Remember, Peter's already been taught that if he's a believer in Christ, he is in Jesus. Well, if you're in him, that means that you're going to suffer like Jesus. A friend of mine and I were writing about this, and he wrote me and said, Wayne, I think Peter's saying, I didn't sign up for this. We do the same thing. Like Peter, we sometimes work against God's openly revealed plans, and the only reason we work against them is they stress us out. Dr. Barclay was spot on. In his book on Mark, he said, The tempter can make no more terrible attack than when he attacks in the voice of those who love us and who think they seek only our good. That is what happened to Jesus that day. That's why he answered so sternly. Not even the pleading voice of love must silence for us the imperious voice of God. Close quote. With that in mind, let's hear again the imperious voice of God. Let's read Jesus' passionate response in verse 33. Verse 33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, let's make sure you guys catch this, right? He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And right there, Jesus exposes the core problem, thinking about human concerns. That's the critical issue. Peter is consumed with human thoughts, human fears, human concerns. Please don't misunderstand. God cares about humans, <laughs> God cares so much that he willingly is facing pain and death so humans can experience a resurrected life that we don't deserve. But when we are awash, listen, when we are awash with human interests, we can no longer hear the imperious voice of God. We, we cannot follow God's true north when our compass is set to swing toward human concerns. Mark captures Jesus' speech with a seriously loaded verb. It points this out. Um, look, at, look at up here and look at your text. Um, what we, I'm off one. There we go. Look up here. What we render uh, concerns, you see concerns twice in your text and thinking once. That's, those are all one word in the original Greek. Uh, phreneo. Phreneo means to set one's mind on something, to live according to what we might call a, a worldview. But there's more. There's more. In classical Greek and Roman thought, phreneo always indicates a binary choice. It is a term of contrast. Here's just a few I grabbed. So, uh, for example, in Homer's Odyssey, phreneo is employed. By the way, in, in the Odyssey, uh, lines 10 through 14, written in the exact same construction order as in this passage, clear parallel. Um, it, he, he says a human mind is either moving towards soundness or sickness, phreneo. 
Binary choice, soundness or sickness. Um, Aeschylus, in his um, play Perse, uses phreneo to show a divide between humility and arrogance. Uh, in Prometheus Vinctus, Aeschylus says uh, phreneo is a contrast between presumption and rational thinking. And we could go on and on, but you get the point. Mark's point is the word, the word concerns and thinking, that's a fine translation. But when you look at the raw point, you see Mark's point. This is a clear contrast. Your worldview is either of God or it is of humanity. This is what inspired our premise for this study. Um, the study of Mark 8 through 16. Here's, wh here's why we're studying this. Christians throughout history have tended to react to the pressing immediacy of life by either completely withdrawing from the world or becoming consumed by the stuff of earth. Each response is understandable yet unacceptable for a follower of Jesus. We are called to follow Jesus, not the world. We are called to engage the world in Christ, not withdraw. The only solution is to let our eyes become filled with the wonder of Jesus. In his passion and resurrection, the most elaborate Roman triumph is put to shame. The wonder of this changes everything. When God's concerns fill my thoughts, I see his deep care for humans. When God's concerns are my concerns, following Jesus becomes an honor instead of a burden. When God's concerns guide my thinking, my soul is unruffled either by the press of time or the immediacy of events around me. This is the whole point of life. Jesus says, follow me. Set your mind on things above so you can be of real use on the earth below. A few years ago, um, our elder Randall Satchel reminded me of uh, Tennyson, how he brilliantly, wonderfully depicted this whole idea in his Arthurian poems. He wrote a series of Arthurian poems called The Idols of the King. Let me just tell you about one of them. There's a mother named Bellicent, okay? She does not want her young adult son to leave home and go off and join King Arthur. So she gives this speech to her son. But stay, follow the deer. She means, she means hunt, you know, enjoy the hunt. Um, by these tall firs and our fast-falling burns, those are streams in the Scottish thought. So make thy manhood mightier day by day. Sweet is the chase, and I will seek thee out some comfortable bride and fair. Isn't that nice? I'll get you a comfortable wife, and she'll be good-looking. She'll be fair. To grace thy climbing life and cherish my prone year. And there we get to the real issue. Prone year means when she's old and she can't move anymore, you, you, you know, um, you're going to be here to take care of me. All right? Look at Gareth's reply. Here's the son's reply. Oh, mother, how can you keep me tethered to you? Shame. Man, I am grown. A man's work I must do. Follow the deer. Follow the Christ, the king. Live pure, speak true, right wrong, follow the king elsewhere for born. Close quote. Tennyson knew Mark 8. That is a phreneo contrast, and Gareth is right. Following Christ is the whole point of life. He'll take care of his mother as part of the process, which takes us directly to our calling, the calling to follow the king. Follow the Christ, follow the king. Verse 34, here it is right here. Calling the crowd. Hey, everybody, come in, come in, come in. Following the crowd. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father 
with the holy angels. Jesus gathers everybody together to make this massively important announcement. What he does here is he gives his plan of discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And again, it's in a four. This is really brilliant writing. It's captured for us in two quatrains. So there's four parts to this, four aspects to following Jesus. First, these are ever-present choices. It's very telling that the requirements for discipleship are all stated in a present continuous tense in Mark's Greek. That means this is a daily, regular, continuous choice. Following Jesus is not a decision that you made or your parents made long ago for you and then set in stone. It is ever renewed. It is a lifestyle born out of a mindset on God. Now, this ever-present, continuing sense of following Jesus, that way of thinking about following, that was not a shock to Jesus' audience. This is something they saw all the time. Jesus did not invent the term disciple. He just appropriated it. Look, Socrates, uh, Hippocrates, Philo, all the other Greek teachers, they had disciples who followed them around. It was a peripatetic life. They walked around following, and they, and they tried to absorb and then live out the theories of their master. The Jewish uh, rabbis did the same thing. They took teenagers who followed them every day in a life of learning. Saul of Tarsus is the perfect example. He studied under very famous Greek philosophers in Tarsus. And then he was mentored in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, who was the most famous rabbi of his day. Bill Hull summarizes this really well. He says, Plato and other famous teachers all used disciple. This is what it would have meant to Jesus' listeners there. They used disciple to mean learner or one who is a diligent student. Spoiler alert, I need to give you some good news. That is exactly how Jesus' disciples act after his resurrection. Uh, Pastor Cody Wallace of Florida recently reminded me that after Jesus conquers death, the disciples don't remain as, as numbskull as they are right now, okay? If you've been beaten down by the disciples' stupidity in Mark, look in the mirror. No, but it, the, um, <laughs> you, you need to know that after Jesus' resurrection, they stopped setting their minds on human concerns. They became real diligent students, learners. They became people who were dedicated to living out what Jesus taught them in every day, in every choice. So, so Peter and John themselves, they mentored other people. They mentored people like, uh, like Clement of Rome and, and Ignatius. John Mark, the author that we're reading, they mentored Polycarp. Uh, that Saul of Tarsus that I told you about, discipled by Gamaliel, he later became a believer and follower of Jesus. He was rebranded as the Apostle Paul. He also discipled people, including Silas and Luke and Timothy and Onesimus and Titus. But here's the most important thing. Listen, Jesus' disciples who were teaching other disciples, they did not teach their followers to follow them. That, that would have been setting minds on mere humans again. They taught their disciples to follow Jesus. And there are three very simple steps, our last three steps, that are involved in following Jesus every day. They're, they're far from easy, but they're very simple. The step one is deny self. The Greek term we translate deny is aparniame. Aparniame means to disavow any connection with someone. <clears throat> the best depiction that I could think of of this occurred in the old TV show Mission Impossible. Listen for the word disavow. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to get the document and bring Anna Kurkowska to safety. As always, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Any of you have seen that old show? You've seen Mission Impossible? What happens to the tape after five seconds? Steam comes out, little sparks, right? 
Thankfully, Jesus' words did not self-destruct in five seconds. Um, in real life, Jesus is saying that our mission, should we choose to accept it, is that we must so embrace God that there is no room left for self. We disavow the captive flesh, and we rely only on the Lord. It is thus, I can illustrate this in the negative, it's the exact opposite of Peter's later performance. On the night where Jesus was betrayed, um, that night when, Jesus, when Peter was there, he, he absolutely denied Jesus and embraced protection of self. It's the exact opposite of what we're called to. And, he, and here's why that makes such a difference. Um, the Apostle Paul said that, that we must deny ourselves. By the way, Peter did eventually learn to deny self, and so must we. And I want you to look at how the Apostle Paul described this. Romans 13, verse 14. In fact, let's read it all together. Let's read it together. Romans 13, verse 14. At home, read it out loud. All right, everybody all together. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That makes all the difference. Not long after Paul wrote that, the Apostle Paul stood <clears throat> before Emperor Nero of Rome. <clears throat> By the way, according to legend, Peter also stood before Nero, but we don't know that for certain. Either way, the contrast is considerable. Paul and Peter learned to deny self. Paul honestly did not put any trust or confidence in his sinful nature. He worked hard every day to, to buffet, to battle, to, to, to make no provision for his flesh. By contrast, the emperor Nero never met a fleshly desire he didn't indulge. He never met an impulse he didn't like, right? Nero, despite having maybe the best teachers ever in human history, Nero ignored their pattern and indulged his own flesh. And the long-term effects are very clear. I really think that uh, nobody said this better than Ray Stedman did about a generation ago. He said this, the effect of self-denial can be seen in this. 2,000 years later, we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. All right? The Mercy Me song, So Long Self, serves as another excellent summary of what does it mean to deny self. This is really good. Uh, the song says, well, if I come across a little bit distant, it's just because I am. Things just seem to be a little bit different. You understand. Believe it or not, life is not apparently about me anyways. But I have met the one who really is worthy, so let me say, so long, self. Well, it's been fun, but I have found somebody else. So long, self. There's just no room for two, so you're going to have to move. So long, self. Don't take this wrong, but you are wrong for me. Farewell. Oh, well, goodbye. Don't cry. So long, self. That's the first ever-present choice. Deny self. The second is to take up one's cross. Now, to that first century audience, the cross was not some romantic image worn on jewelry, right? It was a brutal, painful, ugly sign of the power of the overbearing Roman Empire. And while later generations, uh, including our own, tend to show crucified people with a loincloth on, the reality was that a person in that age was almost always crucified completely naked. The person would carry their own patibulum, the crossbar, all the way through town to outside of the city, they would be abused along the way. They were stripped naked when they got to the place of execution. They were nailed to the beam, lifted up to die a slow, agonizing death while the, the Roman guards split their clothing and their jewelry. To willingly take up a cross means to welcome exposure, marginalization, and minimization. It means to walk toward diminishment of my control, 
my power, my self-righteousness, and my public importance. It, it is the ultimate in surrender. It is the exact opposite of a Roman emperor like Nero. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, shows that Christians who are ashamed of that, understandable, but sadly are ashamed of that, they're going to experience true shame at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, it's probably no surprise that in John's gospel, John's rendition of this, uh, he includes that immediately after Jesus made this speech, many of the people following him left. They left. Now, they may have believed in Jesus, but they weren't ready to be disciples because to be a disciple includes daily taking up one's cross and following him toward personal diminishment. One of my favorite books is Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows, The Wind in the Willows. How many of you have read that book, The Wind in the Willows? Not enough. That is a brilliant story. It's built all around the ethic of taking up one's cross and following Jesus. It's a book that probably should be reread every year or two. In the story, there's all these wise animals like uh, like uh, Moli and and rats and badger, and all the wise animals have this in common: they all luxuriate in their small spaces and their lack of fame. Only foolish animals in the story seek uh, seek fame, seek cultural acceptance. People like Toad with his motor car obsession, which is designed to attract praise. Look, there goes the great Mr. Toad is what he wants to hear. Now, Jesus is not saying, nor is Mr. Graham, that fame and influence are evil. I mean, Jesus was famous and his followers are going to become even more so. What he's saying is that to seek those concerns of humans is the antithesis of following Jesus. And to fight that, we have to willingly and actively take up our crosses and crucify self every day. It's something that Mission Impossible showed really well, I think, in the fourth movie of their movie franchise, Ghost Protocol. This uh, Take a look at this scene. <clears throat> As always, should you or any member of your team be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Ethan. Okay, three, two, one. What hasn't happened? No boom. <laughs> so he goes back. I love this. And Ethan has to destroy it himself. That is really cool. Think that through. Ethan has to personally set off the destruct button. He has to actively take up his cross and eliminate. Do you think about what he's eliminating? He is eliminating evidence that could protect him. Everything goes sideways. That evidence could protect him. That could be his cover, but he destroys it all because he is all in for the mission. What is discipleship? It is continuously denying self continuously taking up one's cross to follow Jesus. Now, following is especially concerned with obedience. When, when you follow someone, uh, you're, you're following their teaching faithfully, completely. I'm an old wrestling coach, okay? So as an old coach, I picture this in wrestling terms. You learn the moves. You do what the coach tells you. I had a recent conversation with the husband of a, um, of a severely mentally ill lady. And it's hard. It's hard in his home. And this man, this man has followed Jesus for years, but he now wants to stop. In, in wrestling terms, if I can use wrestling coach terms, he wants to tap out. 
Um, when, when you're wrestling, you're practicing, and, and you, you, you're getting hurt, or you need to work on something, you tap the other person, and they, and they stop. He wants to tap out. He, he, it's just too hard. He told me this. He said, it's just too hard to be faithful to a wife who is so impaired. Um, remember my other friend who wrote me and said, he imagined Peter saying, I didn't sign up for this. This fellow actually said those exact words to me. He said, Wayne, I did not sign up for this. Now, the Bible makes my task at that point very clear. My first job, just like Peter's first job should have been with Jesus, is to lament with him. I was there to carry my friend in his pain and shock. The way the Apostle Paul put it is we carry one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. I needed to cry with him. And as lament worked from crying to praise, and that's what lamentations always do for God's people, I began my second job. And my second job was to remind the guy that, oh, no, no, you didn't sign up for this. You signed up for a whole lot worse than this. You signed up for much, much more pain than this. You signed up to follow Jesus daily to a cross. You signed up to follow because you were so grateful for a Savior who called such an undeserving wretch as yourself and gave you life in God's grace alone. And as he understood that, I did my third job, which is to remind my brother that following is not done by his strength. I said, you know, when you said you can't hack it, you're exactly right. You can't, neither can I, but Jesus can. And we operate in his strength, not our own. That's why all those disciples of Jesus, after his resurrection, they repeatedly keep saying things like this over and over. Read it with me. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, all together. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. In the book of Hebrews, um, Jesus is called the trailblazer, the perfecter. That means when I obey, I am not having to chart new territory. I am walking after the God who has made a way for me. And when I struggle to obey, his vast strength is there to perfect me. This is true life for a follower. Speaking of life, there's one last detail we need to address. Uh, look at your passage. It gets a little confusing for people today because of the way the Greek uh, psuche is translated uh, these days. Now, most English Bibles render this life in verses 35 and 36 or soul, and, um, and, and that's a legitimate first century meaning behind psuche. But there is another way of understanding psuche, and, and it wasn't rare, but for some reason, and I don't understand, most Bible translators miss the other popular meaning of psuche, maybe because it's hard to render in English, but the second meaning is as a metaphor for something that is dearer than life, something you really must have. And I think the second meaning makes the most sense in this passage. If I want to save the things dearer than life, psuche, then I must let them go. I must cede control to the Lord and set my mind on Him instead of trying to make these dear things all work out myself. That's why Jesus goes on to contrast the more important things with mere stuff. If I gain a whole world of stuff, but I lose the things that are dearer than anything, I am a loser indeed. One spring when I was in Israel, I saw a shepherd boy. He came out of a little defile uh, to my right. And I was walking on, we were in the Judean wilderness, very, very rocky ground, really, quite frankly, not a blade of grass in sight. And he came out and he and his sheep and we waved and they went walking ahead of us. And we walked down this rocky path to a, to a, a big hill that we were heading toward. And on this road, um, one of the rams stopped. And, he, and I watched this ram, he was kind of at the back of the pack and he turned and stopped. And, 
and there was there in a crack in the rock, there was a little saffron flower, there's a little, little yellow flower, and it actually had quite a bit of greenery around it, not like this picture, but it's the best I could find. And this ram stopped, and he looked, and he started munching. Because to sheep, nothing is better. Nothing is more precious than tender shoots, right? And he's going to get this. He just let the shepherd and the sheep go on. I just watched it. I kind of sat back and watched this. And, uh, and after, a, after a few seconds, the, uh, the shepherd kind of turned. I don't know what set off his, his radar, uh, but this boy turned, and he called the ram by name. Ba-dah! Called it really, really harshly. And the ram jumped and came running back, and they went. So they kept walking around the big hill. And I followed them. I actually needed to go somewhere else, but I followed them because I wanted to see this. And around that big hill, we hit one of those places where there is underground water in Israel, and it was the lushest field of saffron flowers you have ever seen. Wildflowers, sheep's heaven, right? It was just absolutely amazing. Now, I later asked my favorite guide because he grew up as a shepherd boy. My favorite guide in that part of the world uh, spent his childhood as a shepherd. And I asked him, I said, what would have happened if that ram had stayed back to eat that one scraggly flower? Here's what he told me. He said, Wayne, the shepherd would have noticed later, and he would have gone back. By then, the ram would have finished that flower. He'd be wandering around lost, the fun of disobedience long gone. The shepherd would find him. He would strike him with his stick. Uh, in Africa, they call it a knob carry. In, uh, in Israel, they call it a, uh, a staff. Uh, he would strike him, and then he would lead him back to the others. But, now this is fascinating, but when they arrived, it would be time to move on. You can't overgraze. It's not good for the ground. It's not good for the animals. It would be time to move on, and that ram wouldn't get any of the field of flowers. Close quote. My friends, instead of the scraggly pickings that we get from our rebellion... Let's follow Jesus. Amen? All right, in response, let's ask ourselves a few questions. I got, I got five questions for you. Here's the first one. In what ways are my thoughts, like Peter's, set on concerns of earth? In what way is my compass pointed? By the way, sometimes this will hide as empathy, uh, which sounds really good, but isn't. Uh, in what ways am I swung towards something other than God's true north? I didn't ask, are there any ways? I asked, what are your ways? Question two, am I relying on my past or, or my parents' past decisions instead of every day choosing to follow Jesus? Every day. What excuses, third question, what excuses am I making for my flesh instead of denying it? The secretary will disavow all knowledge. It, it, we make excuses. The reason I say it that way is one of the ways I can tell I'm not denying my flesh is that, um, not denying self, is that I'll make excuses. Well, that's just, that's just the way I am. Um, you don't understand the burden I carry. You know, whatever, whatever yours is, think of it and own it. Take it captive right now. Question number four. How am I focused on being accepted, popular, included, uh, remember the, the split idea? Instead of taking up my cross to follow Jesus. By the way, C.S. Lewis writes on this a lot if you want to read his stuff. He calls it, um, he calls it the inner ring. That's his phrase for it. What am I doing? Because I want to be in the inner ring. And that's not just a school thing. Adults struggle with it all the time. In what ways am I wanting to be that instead of being willing to be 
diminished. Question five. What is one thing that I know needs to change now in order for me to better obey Jesus? What's one thing that needs to change now? Let's pray about that. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. And I thank you that every change that needs to happen in our lives is empowered by you and by your grace. And I pray by your spirit, you will expose what needs to change for me and, and for every one of us to better follow Jesus. Friend, right now, don't miss the opportunity. Right now, engage with God and let him show you something that needs to change for you to be a better follower of Christ. Own it. And be honest with God about how very hard it may be for you to in any way change that. And listen to him as his scripture tells you that it's not hard for you, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So present it to the Lord and thank him. Thank him that he is the one who transforms. And he gives you the energy to do what you need to do. In Jesus' name, amen.